All right, well, good morning. <clears throat> oh, thanks. Great. Awesome. You never know, you know. It could be one of those mornings where it's like, ah, you're lucky I'm here, Brad. I got nothing. That's okay. That's really good, actually. Um, I got to start on a note that is probably going to be kind of disappointing for some of you. Um, I'm going to, as of this morning, officially retire a much-beloved phrase that we have said at the table for as long as we've been around. And that phrase is that you don't have, we want to be the kind of church where you don't have to believe in order to belong. Now, what we mean by that is good, and it's still very much true. What we mean by that is that we want to be the kind of church where you can, you can have and experience meaningful connection with others and, and without precondition, without judgment. Because if we believe in a gospel of grace, that should be at least the vibe, if not the absolute regular practice of a community. I mean, we're a church called The Table. Like, we're kind of about hospitality as relational and creational generosity. So that, that just makes sense. And so while I don't... That, that is still true, it's, I've, I've kind of realized that over the years, it might also be a little bit misleading. Because what it's communicating is that the, that the believing part is the hurdle, it's the barrier that's keeping people from belonging in, in most of the time. But I, I don't think that's the case, actually. I think the thing that prevents people from belonging is belonging itself. Here's what I mean by that. Now, I want to fill this out because, like I said, this is a much beloved phrase, so I, I want you to know I have good justification. It's almost a cliche now how much we, we say that as a society, we are more connected than ever and yet never been more lonely, alone, isolated, right? Uh, I remember this, there's this fantastic, I mean, <laughs> fantastic is, is very contextual to the article uh, uh, at the Boston Globe uh, that was all about uh, saying that the biggest threat to middle-aged men was not smoking or obesity or alcohol, anything along those lines, but loneliness. Like, this is a, a medical uh, statistic and data that is, that is reinforcing this point. And there have been follow-ups since 2017 saying it's not only still the case, it's actually getting worse. In January of 2018, it was... In hindsight, I, I shouldn't have made jokes about it, but I, I was joking and was like, oh, isn't that silly that, you know, Great Britain just appointed its first uh, new cabinet position, the Minister of Loneliness. That's a real thing. And at the time, it felt like a joke, but in hindsight, like, they're ahead of the curve. And I, of course, don't need to explain to you or talk about how COVID-19 and all the attendant disembodiments of, of community that are, were often necessary as a result of the lockdowns, I don't need to describe how that has made an impact on our struggle to feel like we belong in relationship or community. And still, you'd think, right, that something so universally, pun intended, longed for uh, and pursued would improve and not, not accelerate its decline. So why, why is this happening and why am I saying we should, we, I need to retire this phrase? It's because our entire approach to belonging and our posture therein is actually precluding our experience thereof. It is our posture and our definition, the way that we seek to belong in a place or with a people that's making it harder. You see, at the core of that, 
is that we want this meaningful connection that I described earlier, but without giving ourself, our whole self, to the community in which we want to belong. So before I fill that out and, and talk about us, let me talk a little bit about what belonging in Scripture, okay? I did a, a really extensive search in, old, in the Old and New Testament for the word belonging in English, yes, so not the Hebrew and Greek, so hold all of this loosely. This is just Brad talking. This is not a commentary or someone who has a PhD that says they know what they're talking about. Um, the word belonging in Scripture is used very clearly in, in three ways. The first is that, area, that, that avenue of, of personal ownership, right? as in a property, a piece of property, or, a, or land, or a possession, or wealth, etc. It belongs to someone. It's personal ownership. The second is in terms of divine origin, right? It's so cool. I, I, lo- I love that Scripture uses the word belonging to describe that salvation belongs to the Lord, Right? That justice and mercy belong to the Lord. We talked about that last week. That heaven and earth belong to the Lord. This is describing divine origin, where it is ultimately and most purely sourced. But thirdly, it also describes a covenant relationship. A covenant relationship like family, whether we're talking about the each other kind of family that is a church, our spiritual family, but also Children belong to parents. That's not just a statement of ownership, right? But it's also of familial relational connection. It's used to describe the relationship between people and God, Christians to one another, and individuals to the church in Israel. My point in this is that each of these categories escalate belonging. In other words, with each one that we go further down the line, it includes all of the previous ones. So when we talk about something like salvation, uh, belonging to the Lord, that also implies personal ownership from God, not just origin and source. When we talk about um, uh, God's people to God and that covenantal relationship, it means that the divine origin of that relationship is also in God. And in a sense, God owns his people. He possesses his people. We belong to him. Psalm 100, I know we use this as a call to worship, and it is absolutely a call to worship, but the basis of that call and the reason for our worship is because of God's covenantal relationship with us. It's implicit and explicit throughout all of Psalm 100, and I know that sounds like a lot, but it's only by five verses. Verse 3, it is very explicit that we belong to God. Check this out. And we're going to keep these on the screen because it's, the language is just so... God, it's just so saturated. The first line of verse 3, it says, Know that the Lord, He is God. That word know, it's in the imperative form, meaning that there's an action to be taken there. It's not just to like understand conceptually. It's, it's, it means to experience also. This is the same word that in Genesis 2 when it says that Adam knew Eve. There was a, uh, it, it implies an intimate experience of relationship You guys picking up what I'm stepping in? Cool. Um, So when we say that to know that the Lord, he is God as an action, as a response, what what it's saying and encouraging us is to deepen our belonging in him, to deepen our experience of belonging in him. The second line says, and fills this out and kind of defines that. It says, "It, it, it is he who made us. We are his. And you'll see in parentheses at the end of that, 
uh, I added another kind of phrase that says, and not we ourselves, and that's because uh, it's a long, nerdy story, but basically this could be translated either way. It could be intended either way in that it is he who made us, therefore we are his because he made us, or it is he who made us, not we ourselves who made us. doesn't matter. Whichever one it is, it's a matter of emphasis. But they both mean and are communicating that God designed us. God created us. Right? The third line continues and says, We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. This is saying that God gathers and defines us, plural, individuals, as his people, singular. In other words, our identity our, is only fully known and experienced when we are in community. And the specific community that is God's people, the church. We, you guys good so far? Like, that makes sense, right? It's like, it's right there. It's all right there. But here's where the challenge kind of kicks in a little bit. Because if we belong to God because he defined, he, defi- he designed and defines us, that means that we can become lost like sheep without a shepherd, as Jesus says, when we reject the limits built in our, into our design. Now, I'm going to talk about limits in a second, but let me first talk about how we get lost and, and our particular um, uh, preference or our hobby of getting lost is, is self-belonging, okay? Every culture, every time and place is going to have probably a, a different um, means of getting lost, but ours as Western 21st century modern people is self-belonging. And I want to... Um, I, I, by the way, I stole that idea, this concept and phrase just straight from a guy named Alan Noble, uh, who wrote a fantastic book called You Are Not Your Own, Belonging to God in an Inhuman World. Unqualifyingly, unhesitatingly recommend it. You should all read it. It's fantastic. Um, But he says in this book, belonging necessitates limits. The question is to whom we belong. If we belong to ourselves, then we set our own limits, which means we have no limits except our own will. If we belong to God, then knowing and abiding by his limits enables us to live as we were created to live as the humans he has designed us to be. And so, frankly, what he's describing sounds like an oxymoron and impossible, and if it does, it's because it is. It is an oxymoron, and it is impossible to self-belong. But we, we, it doesn't mean we don't try. Right? There's kind of two main ways that I want to highlight that, that we are tempted towards self-belonging. The first is, is autonomy. And that is belonging without the limits of self-giving, right? When you give yourself to something, you are by definition not giving yourself to something else, right? And we know that relationship is this kind of two-way street, right, of giving and receiving. That's, that's, just, that's just how it works. But autonomy wants to receive without giving, Autonomy wants to receive belonging and acceptance without self-giving because that means giving up options and opportunities we might have to receive something different, something new, something better. Here's a really like, simple, like, easy-to-identify way this works out. When Hannah and I first moved from St. Louis to Colorado now, oh gosh, 10, ten years ago, about ten and a half years ago, we noticed that there was a very 
a very significant difference in the way that people RSVP'd for events or invitations to things, right? In St. Louis, people would say yes and then bail at the last minute. And it was so annoying. Colorado, y'all are better, I guess, because you don't RSVP yes, but you also don't RSVP no. <laughs> you just don't RSVP, and then maybe you'll show up. Don't hear what I'm not saying. This is not, I'm not trying to talk about maybe whether you have or have not RSVP to your community group um, or anything that Maria has sent out for sure. The point of that is that that, that is actually a symptom of what I'm talking about. And I know it's a silly one, but it's so ironic that just actually even as I'm thinking about this, it, it makes total sense between St. Louis and Colorado because in St. Louis, that was actually downstream of a bigger problem, which was that people would live in the city of St. Louis, but because the schools were terrible, as soon as their kids were old enough, they moved out of the city. And that prevented the city schools from ever actually getting better because they would not give themselves to it. In Colorado, many of us are here because we moved away from that city. And yet, we, so we continue the self-belonging, and now instead of, you know, RSVPing yes and not coming, we just don't RSVP. So I don't know if that's better or worse, but there's a problem with this, right? Over time, we start to identify way too much with Bilbo Baggins. I know that's exactly where you thought I was going. When he says, in The Lord of the Rings, he says, I feel thin, sort of stretched, like butter scraped over too much bread. There is significant irony, but a lot of sense in the fact that our lack of giving of ourselves, our attempts at self-belonging actually exhausts us. And it's not a coincidence that the ring of power, Sauron's ring, the one ring, as a metaphor for autonomy and control, makes its wear invisible and thin, less seen, less stable. And so we live with one foot out the door perpetually, and we experience a shallow, unsatisfying, and unsustainable belonging. Okay, that's the first one. The second one, I want to give a lot of qualifications and disclaimers, and that is the f a fear of abuse, Okay. And I'm going to define abuse as a belonging that requires self-giving without limits. Another way of saying is this is a belonging that is, either, that is conditional on allowing yourself to be extracted in a way that is not you giving of yourself, but yourself being taken. Okay? And it's, almost, it's, it's becoming almost as cliche that we've never been you know, more collected or connected and never more alone to say that institutions can be or Maybe even it's stated as strongly as institutions are by nature abusive. And I want to just affirm that that is valid. That is, that is especially valid when, when terms and words like belonging are some, often used to manipulate and compel people to allow themselves to be taken and therefore to, to be abused. Okay? The fear of that abuse, though, is, is almost as bad as the abuse itself. And we need to know the difference between a healthy and an abusive um, twisting of belonging. And thankfully, we have scripture for that. And it actually provides resources. We don't have to just wonder. Thank God. 1 Corinthians 6, 
kind of saddling verses 19 and 20, Paul says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. This is a belonging where you don't pay the cost, but somebody else does. To belong to Jesus is not because you sacrificed enough to earn his love, but because his love was so give it, freely given through and in his sacrifice. So, the degree, so to the degree that a leader or community even emulates Jesus' own self-giving love to sacrifice, sacrificially invite others into belonging is the degree to which that community or person is safe. Now, here's another disqualifier, or disqualifier, <laughs> disclaimer slash qualifier. Um, when I say safe, I don't mean risk-free. Because you can't put a bunch of sinners in deep, vulnerable community with each other and not expect to carry one another's burdens. And by that, I mean, yes, the support that is carrying the burden of others' sins and like encouraging them in their fight against that sin, but also the consequences of it. If you're not experiencing the consequences of, of others' sin in community, you're not actually in real community. You're in a club. And you're not gonna, you probably don't feel like you belong very much. What I'm trying to say is that real belonging is reciprocated. You are, not, you are invited into belonging, but you are also have a sense that the, the person who's doing the inviting also belongs to you in a sense. And that is a really obvious difference from abuse. Because the entire point and intent of abuse is, is the opposite of that, is to protect yourself. To, and if you are abusing someone, you do so, your motivation is to protect yourself from having to belong to them, from having to give yourself to them, from having to be vulnerable. That's why it's so destructive. We're going to talk about this a little bit more after Easter. Um, I know we've, we've talked about doing, you know, elder training and nominations uh, this fall and partially, you know, with Bryce's departure and just having not enough bandwidth to do it, we're pushing that back to ask after Easter. But if you want a sneak peek, read 1 Peter 5, verses 2 through 7. It's explicit. Like, this is what elders and congregants, how they should relate to one another. This is how this healthy ecosystem happens. The problem here, what I'm trying to articulate, is, is not dirty words like submission or authority or constraint or even commitment, right? Those are not inherently abusive words. The problem is that when we wield them in order to extract instead of invite. So these two things, fear of abuse and autonomy, they have something in common. And that is that they... When, when we are not giving ourselves to anyone, it will end up with us feeling like we are giving ourselves to everyone. Let me say that again. When we're not giving ourselves to anyone, it feels like we are giving ourselves to everyone. And in the long term, that carries significantly greater risk. Okay. That was lost. How we get lost? Let's talk about the limits. Uh, belongings limits. And, and let's talk about that because they're really good, actually. And you know that because it's on the slide behind me. And I, I, but no, really, they're very good. Limits are good. Thank you. Okay. I know you're skeptical, even if it's a forced skepticism because of my poorly delivered joke. 
But we are all skeptical that limits are good, even if conceptually there's like a way that we can like do the, the, you know, the hoop jumping and think that, oh, like, okay, I can see some limits are good. But that is a result of our being brainwashed and having Stockholm Syndrome with self-belonging. Let me read Alan Noble's quote again because this is kind of getting into that second half of it where he says, he says, belonging necessitates limits. The question is to whom we belong. If we belong to ourselves, then we set our own limits, which means we have no limits except our own will. If we belong to God, then knowing and abiding by his limits enables us to live as if as we were created to live or designed as the humans, oh, there he is, yeah, as the humans he has designed us to be. Okay, I think one of the, the, the most talked about aspects of this that we can apply this and see where this is so true is in marriage. Whether you're married or not, you know that part of the marriage ceremony is the giving of vows, right? And in belonging to each other, what you're doing with vows is you are agreeing to limits. You are giving yourself to one another and embracing those limits at the same time. Now, you still retain the agencies to break those limits and those vows, if you will, but doing so functionally says, and what that is demonstrating and, and, and communicating is, I no longer belong to you. I no longer belong to you. It is a taking back of the self-giving. And that's scary, right? That's scary when the depth of vulnerability you are embracing is till death. Until death do you part. Because you have said, in giving yourself to another, you are saying you will not give yourself to anyone else. That, that's, that entails some risk. It trusts. Limits, and in this case vows, create the safety that is necessary in marriage for the joyful intimacy marriage is designed for. Apart from which, it is very difficult to ever understand marriage as a gift also, in addition to a commitment. It is actually in the embracing of the limits and the commitment that the gift is most clearly experienced. By the way, this is also why adultery and abuse is functionally uh, is, is biblically allowable, uh, biblically allows divorce because it is abandoning the marriage covenant. It's not, it's not just sinning within two sinners together, it's abandoning the marriage covenant. Now, I say all this because this is exponentially more true, not the abandoning the marriage covenant part, but the limits being good. Um, exp- exponentially more true in our belonging to God. Let me read uh, Romans 7 and then 12.1. Romans 7, Paul says this, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, in other words, belonging to ourselves, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law This is language of freedom. Having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. In other words, the limit we have now is the spirit who, yes, uses the law, but it is not a condemning code. It is life-giving, it is resurrecting because the one who satisfied it. Romans 12.1 says, and by the way, here's, here's here's a fun little kind of thing you can stick in your back pocket. Anytime you see a therefore in Scripture, 
ask what it's there for. Cool, right? Awesome. When it's th- this therefore is there for the reason of everything in Romans 11, 1 through 11, the 11 chapters preceding it, all of that is writing on therefore, for all of those reasons, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies, your whole selves, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Sounds like Psalm 100. But did you catch that, actually? There's something maybe a little more subtle that, that, that like, let's, let's bring up that verse again, but with different parentheticals that I added. Let me read that again. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, plural, yourselves, plural, individuals, as a singular living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The rest of Romans 12 through 14, everything that follows this one verse, does nothing other than describe the many facets of what it means to offer your whole, sol- your whole selves to belonging to God. All of it. And it also does so with the same pattern of singular, fully expressed and known, or sorry, the plural individuals fully expressed and known in the singular community, the people of God. In other words, every single one without exception explains how we either live out belonging to the church corporately or live out belonging to one another in community plurally. Okay, Brad, what are you trying to say? Can you just break it down very simply? You can't belong to God without belonging to the church. To say that you can belong to God without belonging to his people, Israel in the Old Testament, church in the New Testament, is as nonsensical as a football bat or a glitter vampire becoming Batman. Or should be. Come on, you guys don't? Okay, never mind. Some of you are too young, some of you are too old. Okay. The curse of being a zenial. In fact, if anything, it's so nonsensical, we actually belong to each other because we first belong to the church, not we belong to the church because we belong to each other. But that's actually how we treat it. And that's actually like, um, anytime I hear someone say, and by the way, at least several of you in this room have said this, so like, no judgment. This is just how we learn. Um, uh, when I hear someone say, you know, I don't want to become a member because I still feel like I'm, you know, I'm not as committed yet, or I don't feel very connected right now. And it's like, uh, if you're in Christ, then you are a member of the body universally your feeling and experience of connection is not what facilitates your membership, but the other way around. It is the choosing of giving yourself to a local expression of the body of Christ that makes you feel more like a member. In fact, if anything, by the way, another note, uh, we're going to do our next membership class. Y'all are invited. On September 17th, is that right? Is that right? Is it the 17th, Maria? Okay, good. I have my notes, but yeah. 17th. And to to become a member, as it relates to this idea of self-belonging and belonging to God, is, is 
what you're doing in giving yourself to the church is you're opting into shepherding and therefore preemptively opting out of self-belonging before it is most tempting and dangerous, which is when you are, expect, you, when you are most tempted to run, most tempted to, to self-protect and to not lean into the vulnerability that God's grace makes possible and normative in his bride. So long story short, if you belong to God, you necessarily belong to the body. And it is within the body that you have the most opportunity to experience that, that belonging. It is in that, not in your kind of custom uh, arrangement of different belongings to create your own preferred autonomous belonging. Okay. This is the last point I'm going to make, and then we're going to get into the Q&A, so definitely send those in. Send those in if you have them. But let's ask the question of so what. And this gets back to the, not just the like, kind of implicit root and, and, and anchor of, of Psalm 100, but the, the, the obvious explicit theme from start to finish, and that is the joy of belonging to God. There are seven joyful responses in just five verses right? I'm just list these. It calls us to sing, to serve with glad, gladness, to move toward God. In other words, to hug him back, right? To know, as we were talking about Adam and Eve earlier, to exp- experience intimately, to know that he is God, to experience intimately that he is our Lord, to enter the gates with thanksgiving. That's called a homecoming. To enter his courts with praise because we're innocent and free. By the way, you're doing it right now. And to give thanks. In other words, if we experience belonging to God, it will catalyze and be expressed as a joyful gratitude. And did you, I don't know if you, I think sometimes we read the Psalms and we read kind of eloquent language like, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise, give thanks to him, bless his name. And we, we're, like, we're kind of distracted by the shininess of, of the language. And it's easy to miss how surprisingly vulnerable it is to express gratitude to someone. Have you thought about this? Like when you celebrate someone, um, when you express gratitude, especially if you're doing it kind of on your own, you are by definition... Um, giving credit and glory away. You're saying that you are more significant than I am. You are centering attention on another person. It is a humble decreasing in order to, for the purpose of elevating and edifying another. You might even say that gratitude and self-belonging can't exist in the same heart space. And by that I mean that's true. <laughs> in fact, if you read Psalm 100 or you heard us read it this morning and you thought to yourself, cool, I'm just not feeling very grateful right now. I'd encourage you to ask whether or not you've given yourself to God. And if, and if the answer to that is yes, then ask, have you given yourself to the church? And if you're like, yeah, it's my first Sunday, hold, the ro- hold your role, pastor. That's fine. It's a process. We're good, okay? But it's something to think about as you, as you go. 
It's because Psalm 100 is just vulnerably, it's so vulnerably grateful in, in grasping at words to describe the indescribable, it's practically naked. But that's the freedom that we have in the joy of belonging to God. Okay, this is the last, last point before we do Q&A. And I want to head off one of those questions of the past because I know, you know, the application question of like, okay, what do we do with this, right? If you only did one thing to deepen your belonging to God, in fact, if you literally forgot everything I have said so far and you don't even know why you're going to do this one thing and you did it anyway, it would still work. <sighs> and you're like, tell me. <laughs> or I hope you are. It's very simple, but it's hard. And it's, I know you're going to doubt me, but this is not from me. This is from God. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. It's the fourth commandment. It still applies. It's, it's a good limit that helps to facilitate our belonging to God. But what that means, to remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy, it means making this Sunday worship your highest priority off the top. You know, we all have these things that you're like, if, if I have to cancel or reschedule this plan, it will cost something. It will be expensive, whether that's camping or a flight. Hannah and I, we had to eat like several hundred dollars in Southwest Airline vouchers um, from COVID because they expired and it's a long story. And yes, we asked all of the people we could possibly ask whether we get them back and it drove me crazy that we lost it. And this is worth more. Because the cost has already been paid. And that makes the belonging guaranteed over time as we give ourselves to a people into God. And I guarantee you, if you do that, you will experience increasing, drop my book, uh, rest, joy, and freedom through that limit. And I know that that sounds a lot not like rest. <laughs> To, to remember and to keep this, to remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy, to prioritize it, to say no to things, to choose not to travel, to, like, I know you get it. Sickness, it counts, especially if your kids are sick. Thank you for not taking that and, and bringing that with you um, to table kids. Um, but you know what is possible to prioritize over. And it only doesn't sound like rest because we've been brainwashed by a world that says rest means doing what I want, which is self-belonging, instead of living how God designed me, which is belonging to God. And so all of this, to put all this together, I'm going to put like two sentences. If you summarize Psalm 100, and we just kind of broke it down, like got, out, got the kind of poetic language out of the way, which kills me to say because like, no, it's beautiful. It's part of the expression, but I'm just trying to like kind of hammer home the whole point of this thing. It's this. It's that the nations, in verse 2, and God's people... Verse 4, both belong to God regardless of whether we live that way because he created us that way, right? But that is even more true for those who know him, God's people, as sheep know who know their shepherd. And the best part of that is none of this is dependent on us because that would be self-belonging, but on God's goodness, steadfast love, and faithfulness. In other words, we belong to God. That's verse 5. And thank God, verse 1. You see how it all fits together. Okay. Let's see. 
what fun questions we have this morning. Okay, we got several. Okay. Can you flesh out why serving no one can feel like you're serving everyone? Good question. Okay. You feel this way because what you're trying to do is maintain many shallow connections instead of a few to several deeper connections. And maintaining a connection without the, the relational resources that comes from giving and receiving, it's just exhausting. We're literally also just not physiologically made for it. In the same way we're brain, like brain-wise, physiologically, we're not neurologically able to process and, uh, and, and just even take in all of the information that we now have access to at the, at the click of a button. I was going to say, hey, what's a touch of a phone? There we go. Feeling old now. Um, we're, not, we're also not able to maintain that many relationships. And our fear of saying no to something good actually blinds us to being able, like that might happen, blinds us from being able to delight in the good that's right in front of us. Very good question. Uh, can you spell out more about what you mean by limits and belonging? Um, Okay, let me, here's another example. Let's say, uh, like, in a sense, okay, this is a little more transactional, so that's why I cut it from the sermon, but I'm still going to use it to answer the question. Um, if you uh, get hired at a, at a job, the limits of your job that you're hired at is your job description, right? And the expectations of working 40-whatever hours a week, okay? That means it would be very strange and surprising uh, if you said, you know what, my, the limits... I am, my own will is my limit, so as an accountant, I would love to design a new product for my company. Your boss would be like, what? what? No, that, doesn't, that makes no sense. You probably get fired. I don't know if you get fired. It depends on how many hours, work hours you took to, design, to try and design that product. And also, maybe if you have any training as a product designer, but missing the point of the, the illustration. Um, it is our constraint... In the same way that kind of um, constraint facilitates and catalyzes creativity, if it's the right kind, limits in belonging are what helps us deepen our, our experience of belonging. And so if that, I feel like I'm not quite answering your question very well, so if that doesn't, please um, let me know. Okay, do you think there is a direct correlation between a lack of accountability and overall connection in larger churches and the fact that they do not push for church membership? Yes, absolutely. That is a great example of when autonomy, look, when a church doesn't value shepherding enough to have members who opt into that and say, yes, I want that, what you're communicating is like, I just want what you bring to this church, not what we have to offer you. And that is culture shaping for an entire community, for sure. And it is not very distinct from the rest of the world. It's, it makes the church not very different. Not just, and I'm not just talking about in form. I'm talking about like on a deeper level. Um, now, churches, I don't know. Churches may have some other means of, of accomplishing that outside of membership. I don't know. But just based on kind of what's being asked here, that's kind of my, my hot take. Um, how does membership at the table look Will my involvement be different? 
also a very quick question. I would encourage you to come to this membership class because coming to the class does not mean you have to become a member. Uh, it means you can, you can become a member after that. So those are the kinds of questions we answer there. Okay. Which comes first, faith or belonging? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I would say in many ways it is belonging that facilitates belief and faith. Because how do you know to trust without experiencing the goodness of that trust before it requires something of you? That's, I mean, think about your kids, right? They're a member of your family before they choose to opt into. How? Because they earned it and deserved it? No. Because they believe that you are, they are a member of your family? No. Because they are. Because they belong in your family. That is often how they know and trust that they are your family. So it's almost like the church and family are really similar. Um, can you have belonging in the church without faith? Very good question. Very good follow-up. Um, to a degree. Right? If you couldn't, then there is no way for you to experience the goodness of belonging before you have faith. But I will say, this is part of what I'm talking about when I say it's not belief that is the barrier to belonging so much as it's our, our posture toward belonging. And I will say, there have been, we have, I think, maybe even still here, let me think carefully. Over the course of our almost six years, we've had non-Christians who have given themselves more to this church despite not believing than Christians have. And in every case that I can think of, they are a Christian today because of that. So to your question, yes, but once you get a taste, it's really hard to let go. Praise God. All right, man, you guys got a lot of questions. This wasn't the controversial sermon. That was last week. Okay, so in order to feel connected to God, I should sign up for teams like Morning Coffee, Table Kids, or Music. I didn't send that. I'm going to go on a limb and say it might have been Maria, but you don't have to confirm or deny that. But also true. Actually, I shared with, uh, I said this wasn't going to be in the sermon, so it's true. It's in the Q&A. Um, I shared with those who, everyone who's serving and volunteering this morning that um, the word in uh, verse 2, serve the Lord with gladness, if you have like an NIV translation, it's probably worship the Lord with gladness. And that's because serve and worship are the same word. And, and, and actually, that's why churches traditionally call Sunday morning a worship service. It's actually kind of redundant, if anything. And so, yes, that's serving the Lord with gladness, especially in the, in the, uh, the gates and courts. His gates and courts is very much a, a, a helpful for belonging. Okay, I'm going to take one more question. If we can't take the upcoming membership class, can we still become members? Or we need to wait until the next membership class? The answer to that question is yes, you will need to wait to the next membership class um, because you do need that to become members. Unless you're transferring your membership from another church in our denomination, in which case we still want you to go through it, but you can become a member first because you've actually made that commitment to a church that shares our theological convictions. And you said, like, I know what you mean by shepherding, I know what you mean by things like church discipline and all these things, I'm in. So yeah. Okay. Guys, 
you always have good questions, but those were really good. Just want to encourage you. Um, okay, as we transition to communion, um, I had this thought. First <laughs> um, Corinthians six says that we were bought with a price, and I don't know where this thought came from. It's probably ADD, but I had this thought of like, I wonder if Jesus got a good deal, <laughs> right? Because when you think about it, you know, if you got a good deal on something, it's not just because you got a good price, it's because you got a good price, you got, a, you got something very valuable for a good price. And it hit me how much the answer to that question is like, of course, he got a good deal. Even though it came at infinite cost to himself, it was still a deal because of how much he values us as people. And that's cool. To say that we belong to Christ, to belong to God, is not just a statement of whether or not we have given ourselves to Jesus or not, or to the church. It, it's actually a statement of how much God loves us. And that is reinforced edibly every week on Sunday morning. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he says, this is my body it is broken for you. This is the cost of your sin and brokenness and everything that is wrong in this world, and yet I'm paying the, pot, the, the cost, not you. Likewise, he took the wine and he poured it out, and he says, this wine is the blood of the new covenant. It is given for the remission of sins. This is covenantal relational language. He is saying that in my shedding of this blood, you now belong to me, and it's worth it. And as often as you eat this bread and you drink this wine, you proclaim my death until I return. And not only that, have you ever been into like a really like, like an old school church that's like very kind of liturgical and traditional looking? They have a communion table, and it says, it might say like in remembrance of me, or it might say give thanks. The Eucharist, which is another word for communion, means thanksgiving. So as often as we eat this bread and drink this wine, we are proclaiming his death, but we are also in the same breath giving him thanks for his steadfast love and faithfulness to all generations. Let's pray. Jesus. Oh, well, this is one of the Sundays where it is just it is fun to dig into your word and to preach and to see the the layers upon layers of love and goodness and beauty in, in your word and also the layers of, of all the hurdles and barriers that keep us from seeing that. But Lord, you are faithful to, every, to all generations and therefore you will not spare due diligence or, or rest until you have peeled back every layer to reach us. And Lord, it is good to be able to rest in that. So Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your love that made belonging not only possible, but inevitable and real. We pray in your name. Amen.